0: I call it the church's national anthem. They don't write them like that anymore, but beloved. You know, all those words and all those heavy-duty thoughts that are contained in that song. What a song. I love singing that song. John chapter 7. Read verses 25 through 31. We continue in our reading of the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Once again, we see the total sovereignty of God over time. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him, They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And our sermon text, the last section of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. ESV has it, uh, this section entitled, Final Words. And that's, I plagiarized that for the title of my sermon today, Peter's Final Words. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. You can be seated. You can be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our journey through Second Peter and First Peter. Thank you for the great apostles' uh, words to us, inspired by you. What a blessing it's been to study these two letters. And now with these final words of the apostle, we pray that you drive them deep into our heart and that we'd leave you today with a greater hunger to grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. So, Father, we ask today that you would be honored and pleased by our attendance to your word. We pray that the preaching would be clear and concise and that Jesus would be lifted up. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart together today, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today we wrap up our study of 2 Peter. It's been good. It's been good. Both of... Both of Peter's letters have been good. Uh, We saw last week, quick review, that the day of the Lord will be sudden, it will be unannounced, it will come like a thief in the night, uh, and it will be catastrophic and revealing. Uh, We pointed out the drastic, uh, apocalyptic, dramatic terms that Peter used the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works done on it will be exposed. So, and, and Jesus said the same thing, basically, the present heavens and earth will pass away. However, his words won't pass away. That's why we're studying. That's, what, that's why we do this every Sunday and every Wednesday night. Because even though heaven, the heavens and the earth will pass away, the word of the Lord will not Everyone and every work ever done will be exposed before the judge of the whole earth. As we said last week and unpacked last week, the, the whole earth will be laid bare before the Lord. And the only thing that will matter is, are you dressed in the righteousness of Christ? Are you dressed in His righteousness alone, making you faultless to stand before the throne? That's all that will matter. The day of accountability Will have arrived. As Romans 3 19 says, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. There'll be no more arguing, no more bickering, no more excuse making. Every mouth will be closed. It'll be like Job. Remember Job? You know, uh, my eyes, uh, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes see you. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes and I'll lay my hand over my mouth. There's nothing else I can say. And that day is coming for every non-believer. They will stand before the Lord stripped naked of all arguments and excuses and and, and, and they will have nothing to say. So if you're here today and you're saved, you're a born-again child of God, be thankful for that. Be thankful for that. You will be able to stand in the final day. So on that day... That for us, while it will be a day of accountability for the unsaved, it will be a day of total renewal for the people of God. As the Lord promised, He will be making all things new. All things. All things. Us, the heavens, the earth. uh, And we're trusting God with every fiber of our being that this day is coming. And we're not worried about the timing of it. Because Jesus said no one knows the timing of that except the Father, not even the Son of Man. We're waiting in holiness and godliness, as Peter said last week, uh, living lives that honor Christ. And from the human perspective of time, Peter says that we're, we're, when we do that, we are hastening his return. In verse 11, Peter uses wording uh, that basically says, Since your king is returning to receive you to himself, how astonishingly excellent Your lives ought to be. In other words, the second coming of Christ should motivate us. It should be a motivator for holy living because we want to be found doing what He's called us to do when He returns. Peter urges his readers to live lives that reflect their Savior and that line up with the hope that they have in His return. The principle is this. Uh, as we talked about last week, anticipation of the return of the Holy One should motivate us to live holy lives. As we said last week, we expect Jesus as we reflect Jesus. Okay? Well, if you like reflect, if you like to put that first, then we are reflecting Jesus as we are expecting Him, trusting God with the timetable. One uh, author called it productive waiting. Productive waiting, meaning we're not waiting twiddling our thumbs. We're not waiting in the lounge chair with the sunglasses and the lemonade saying pass the suntan oil. No, we are waiting productively. We are laboring for the Lord. We are uh, uh, zealous for good deeds, we're not just sitting around. Yes, we're waiting for Jesus, but it's productive waiting. It's God honoring, God glorifying waiting. It's waiting while doing good works that have been prepared for us beforehand, according to Ephesians two ten. So John MacArthur, I love that he sums it up well. He says, "At the moment." Mockers may ridicule and false teachers may scoff, but their disparaging comments and outright insults are only short-lived. One day Christ will return and God's judgment will be displayed, a fact that is guaranteed by His promise and undergirded by His power. After He returns, the entire present universe will cease to exist it will be replaced by a completely new heaven and new earth where the righteous will live with God forever the unrighteous on the other hand will face the eternal consequences of their sin meaning hell forever hell forever not, annihil- not, not annihilation not your burn up and it's over with No, hell is just as eternal as heaven, hell forever. And then MacArthur says, in light of all this, believers are to wait with eager expectation. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit more today as Peter ends his letter. So uh, we are living in the hope of our king's return. What will that look like? Okay, how are we to live as we wait for the return of Jesus, Peter gives us some exhortations. I want to focus on five of them. Number one, according to verse 14, we're to live with righteous character, with righteous caref- character. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter's phrase, without spot or blemish, points to the righteous character that we are called to live, the righteous character that God is is forming in our life as He transforms us into the image of Jesus from glory to glory. Peter has already mentioned this in verse 11. So we talked about this last week, but now he adds in verse 14 the need for diligence. He says, be diligent to live like this and this word stresses the responsibility of the born-again believer to put forth the spirit-empowered effort needed for holy living and was it doesn't just happen we have to work we must be diligent in the pursuit of holiness it will not happen without effort on our part Spirit-empowered effort, not fleshly effort, spirit-empowered effort. In other words, we have a responsibility to live godly lives. So do it. So do it. Press on, beloved, persevere. I believe that's one of the hallmarks of our body. An alternate translation for be diligent is make every effort. Make every effort effort to live a life without spot or blemish simon kistemacher of the theologian writes this process is not a passive mode of existence but one in which the individual believer has an active part i I could have noted several scriptures that point to this this principle hebrews 12 14 for example strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Philippians 2, 12, and 13, one of our favorites. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, not work for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus has already done all the work for it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, okay? Now, we're to work it out we're to work it out. Why can we do that? For, which also means because, right? We know that. For, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, we work out our salvation that Jesus has worked and paid for, and we can do that because God is planted his indwelling holy spirit in our life and he is working he is working in us so we can work out the life that he is forming in us day by day again other other verses i could have pointed to romans 12 do not be slothful in zeal first corinthians 15 be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. So this is not a call to passivity. It's a call to diligence. A call to diligence, okay? Secondly, we do it with confident faith in the Lord. And I pull that from the end of verse 14 when he says, and at peace. Be diligent to be found by him Without spot or blemish, righteous character, and to be found by him at peace. Now, when can a Christian be at peace in this unpeaceful world that we live in? We can be at peace when we are fully confident that God is in control, that God is working everything according to his plan. Romans 8 28, he's working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose when we are confident in that, we will be at peace. Now, we're not talking about peace with God. The Bible Bible highlights two types of peace for the Christian, peace with God and the peace of God. I believe Peter is speaking here of the latter because the letter is written to believers. It's written to people who already are at peace with God. They already know that peace, the peace with God, okay? Jesus has done that for us. I believe Romans 5 speaks to that. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. That's referring to our salvation. That's done. That's in the past. The peace of God is something that the Lord wants us to experience day by day. And it comes and get stronger as we grow in our confidence that God has everything under control. That, that, that God doesn't let anything come into our life that is not for our good. He, he knows every hair on our head. Nothing can pluck us out of his hand. We are his forever. Forever. Paul spoke of this in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. That's another way of saying be at peace, right? Be at peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but at everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. The peace of God. Not with God. That's already happened. Thanks to the blood of Jesus and the new birth. Gifts of God. Saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That's the peace of God. Paul is talking of the peace of God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if our hearts and minds ever needed to be guarded, it's in this time and day. Amen. Amen. So, this is one of the benefits, one of the many benefits of being A born-again person we're at peace even when the world's going to hell in a handbasket we're at peace because Jesus is coming back God's got everything in control I'm not going to hell I never have to worry about going to hell my biggest problem has been taken care of I'm forgiven I'm a forgiven person my sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus and I'm confident in that and that gives me peace I can live at peace. I can live, I can, I can live a joyful life in, a, in the midst of an, a pretty unjoyful world. Charles Swindle said, instead of squirming in panic and writhing in anxiety, we should exude peace. The peace that is a gift of our salvation. The peace that God actually gives. The peace that eliminates worries and fears. A peace that comes with knowing that our sins forgiven as and as we've already said our biggest and worst problem hell has been taken care of again john macarthur no matter how terrible things become as human history moves forward toward final destruction believers who live in hope have the settled peace i love that phrase settled peace it's not the roller coaster peace you know, we have the peace when things are going good. A good day, we have the peace. Everything caves in, bad day, every, bottom falling in front of us. We don't have peace. We're back to anxiety and worry. No, this is what we want, beloved. We want the settled peace that is not determined by our surroundings, nor our circumstances, nor by other people. We have the settled peace. Sustained by what the Lord has planned for those who love him. And guess what? We can't even imagine what the Lord has planned for us. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that. 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, dear dear church family, we have not seen, we have never heard about, we can't even imagine the glory and the wonder and the joy of the future God has prepared for us. And even though we can't specifically describe it or imagine it. The confidence that it's coming brings peace to our heart in a very, very unpeaceful world. And thus we are confident that God is working all things for our good and for his glory. And God is honored when others see our calmness That results from knowing that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He has everything under control, even when it doesn't look like it. Okay? So, how do we live in in, in this time? Well, we live with righteous character. Uh, We live uh, with confident faith. Thirdly, we live with proper thinking. With proper Thinking, OK, verse 15 and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him with proper thinking. We're to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, this is connected back to Second Peter three nine. We spent a lot of time on that verse so we've already unpacked this notion when we were pondering verse 9 and basically we said that you know the scoffers are saying you know, where's the promise of his coming it's been so long god he's forgotten you know but what we said was god's delay is not the issue god's patience is the issue a beautiful issue he's patient Spurgeon said, Christ came not to destroy the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So as every year rolls by, let us account it salvation and spend and be spent in the hope that by any means we may save some. Many of us here have got loved ones, you know, that you know, while we're looking forward to the return of Christ, we're really saying, Lord, could you save my loved one before you come? <laughs> you know, that's the balance. So we're thankful that he's coming to get us, to come get his bride, but we're also thankful for his patience. Because we've got people that we want to see with us when he comes. Paul, Peter adds here that Paul wrote the same thing. Well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Big surprise, okay? Because who's the, who's the uh, inspiration behind both Peter and Paul? Well, God. This is God's book. Of course they would say the same thing, okay? Count the patience of the Lord of salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you. Paul has said the same thing. Examples Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 9, and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for met vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory now hallelujah with that hallelujah that's a that's a heavy duty verse that, i mean that's what that's what peter's talking about when he says uh, uh, as he does in his letters when he speaks to them of these matters There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Well, amen, Peter. I'm so glad you said that because that makes me feel a lot better about the things I have trouble understanding that Paul's written here. And here's one of them, Romans 9 through 11. It's hard to understand. You know, those of you that were with us when we went through Romans, hard to understand. But basically, I think what 22 and 23 is, God is patient with those God-haters Because he's also patient with vessels of mercy. In other words, he's he's patient with those who have been prepared for destruction because he's patient also with those who have been prepared for glory, i.e. the elect. Oh, Paul, these things are so hard to understand. But you said them, God. God set them through you, and we're, we're believing them. We're believing them, and now we're just begging you to let our loved ones that, don't, that haven't repented yet, we're begging you that they are part of the elect. We're, we're begging you for that. One more way to look at it. We can count it as salvation. Now, hang with me now. We we can count God's patience as salvation, not just for the elect who haven't been saved yet, but listen, we can count it as salvation for our own present tense of salvation, okay? Quick review. Remember, we've, we've, we've gone over this many times in our history, but it's vital. Three tenses of salvation, right? Past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, that's done. We're not going to hell. Hell's off the table. We, past tense, we have been saved. Theological word, justification. We have been justified. Okay, with me? Past tense. Present, uh, future tense, let's save the present tense for last because that's what we want to talk about. Future tense of salvation. One day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, hell. We will be saved from the presence of sin in a perfect place called heaven forever. Okay? No more sin. Okay, but right now, okay, present tense of salvation, we are being saved day by day, moment by moment, progressively from the power of sin in our life. We'll never be sinless in this life, but we are sinning less. That's what should be happening. If that's not happening... Then before we come to the table today, you need to examine yourself to see if you'd be in the faith. Don't you realize that Jesus is in you, changing you, and and saving you, present tense, from the power of sin. So here's getting back to Peter now. That's the review on the three tenses of salvation. I know that was quick, but that's vital to understand that, so vital to understand that, Okay. So getting back to Peter, here's, how, here's what he's saying. Here's how I believe. Here's how it works. As we fight the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we win some battles and we, yeah, we lose some battles, right? We win some battles and we lose some battles. But while we're doing that, what is God doing by his spirit that dwells us, indwells us? He is honing us and he is refining us, and he is sharpening us. What's the theological word? Sanctification, right? Justification, past tense. Glorification, future tense. Present tense of salvation, sanctification. We learn from our mistakes. We, we, we learn from our, our, our sin. If we confess it and repent, okay? And and we grow, we grow, we grow in grace and knowledge. And the longer we live here, the more we long for the world to come, the more evil and vile this world becomes in its unending decay and despair, the sweeter and more precious becomes the hope of heaven. We're changing. We're growing. Romans 12 calls it mind renewal. Our minds are being renewed. We've presented our bodies as living sacrifices. Here we are, God. Here we, go, here we are. And God is renewing our mind progressively. Present tense, salvation. In a word, sanctification. Done by the indwelling spirit. What's, his, what's his, uh, the material he uses? The word of God. Jesus prayed that for us. Our great high priest, John 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's why we do this every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night. We want to be saved progressively. Present tense, we are being saved. So God's patience in sending Jesus is not only giving our lost loved ones who we hope are in the elect a chance to repent and be saved, it's also giving God more time to progressively save us. Are you with me? Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? We are being saved from the power of sin. Spurgeon puts it like this. Regard the patience of God when it permits the ungodly to slander and injure you as salvation. Because it tends to your salvation by driving you nearer to the Lord. There it is. There it is. Spurgeon said it a lot better than I did. There it is. Okay? We fight the battles of this world. We're tempted to despair. The Holy Spirit inside of us says, don't despair. You belong to Jesus. And we're pushed closer to him. I think that's what Paul had in mind in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think. When he said, and we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Present tense salvation are being transformed into his likeness from, from one level of glory to the next. There it is. That's what we're talking about. Back to Spurgeon. It prevents you making your home in this world. Man, isn't that so true? The more craziness we see in this world, we know this is not our home. This is not our home. I I, I, I feel, I, more and more, I, I feel like what the Bible says I am, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner to this world. Spurgeon, it forces you to be a stranger and a foreigner. It compels you to go outside the gate, bearing Christ's reproach. And so in this way, that which seemed so hard to bear brings salvation to you. Present tense salvation, to be exact. Or sanctification. We'll talk a little bit more on that in the, in the, when we get to the last verse, okay? Because Peter, he leaves by commanding us to do what? Grow. What's he talking about? Sanctification. Okay, number four. How should we live? How should we live in light of a Jesus' return? We've seen three ways so far. Number four, with doctrinal stability. With doctrinal stability. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care. Alternate translation, be on guard. Take care, be on guard that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Lose your own stability. So, in light of Jesus' return, we want to live in this present evil age, in these last days, with doctrinal Stability, because Peter Peter says, don't lose your stability. Therefore, we want stability. We want doctrinal stability. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In exhorting this, this, Peter takes one last jab at the false teachers, right? Most of the book was that. All of chapter 2 was that. Warning against the false teachers. And here he takes, in the next to last verse, he takes one last jab at him. Don't forget about those guys. They're wolves in sheep clothes and clothing, they're coming for you. So be on guard. Take care. Don't lose your doctrinal stability. Take care, guard yourselves, be on guard, beware. Don't be deceived or led astray with others who are falling for false teaching. Beware of phony believers, beware of being led away from devotion to Jesus, beware of leaning on your own understanding, beware of pride and destructive self sufficiency. Now, how do we guard ourselves? How do we get this stability? How are we firmly established in the faith? By sinking our roots, the roots of our life, deep into the Word of God. That's it. That's it. It's not magic, it's not rocket science. It just takes effort. And that gets back to be diligent, right? That's where we started. That's it. Listen to Jesus' exhortation in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24, and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, does them, not just hear them, do them, obey them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. As we all know, as we are all very aware, the winds of godlessness are blowing violently against the house of the people of God. The floodwaters of the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of the age are steadily rising. The enemy hates and is trying to destroy everything we love and hold dear. Attacks on the sanctity of life. Attacks on the nuclear family. Attacks on biblical marriage. Attacks on God's design for sexuality, attacks on our God-given right to worship freely and live out our faith according to the Bible. But we will not fall. Why? Because we're standing on the rock. Now I pray with every every fiber of my being that that statement was true for you because the winds are howling and the floodwaters are rising and they're going to get more bold and more brazen Jesus told us the world hates you and so many professing churches are trying to make nice with the world you're not going to change them the world hates you So, beloved, you've got to get your roots deep into this so the house of your life will not fall. Quick aside, next Sunday is Graduate Sunday. I believe, if our counting is right, we have six high school graduates. Uh, Yesterday, I had the joy of going to the graduation ceremony for four of them. Can't believe my one of my grandkids is graduating. I just that is just hard to believe, man. I'm an old dude, and and I uh, you graduates. I, I don't know how many of you are planning on going to college or university or secular college or university. I was listening, you know. There, I think there were forty three graduates in this class yesterday, and. At the, it, was, it, was, it was just very moving, very touching. The parents were heavily involved, and it was beautiful. And the, the readers, the, the MCs were reading out their goals and where they were, what their next step was going to be and what their college was going to be. And I, I listened to the names of some of the colleges. And, and all I could do was just start earnestly praying for every one of them. Not, because, not necessarily because of the college or whatever. That, that's in God's hands, and that's between them and the Lord. And, but I just started praying for every one of them, every one of them. My, 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 grand, my grandson, Levi, and the other three that are members here that are part of our church family, but for all of them, all of them. Um, and to, to our six, you need to hear what Peter's saying here. You need to hear what Peter says, especially if you're planning on going to college. And especially, especially if you're planning on going to a secular college. Okay? Your roots better be deep. I'm telling you. Your roots better be deep. There are, uh, you, therefore, beloved, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You need to hear that. You need to hear that. And know that your church is and will be praying for you. I saw a a study recently that said... um, that Bible-believing people ought to be encouraged because we're having more babies and having more kids and ha- having bigger families than the God-denying, God-hating people. And so that, that, was, that was good. That was good news. That means the future hopefully will be brighter. But the mindset of this side is, we don't need babies. We'll steal theirs when they come to school. You need to hear Peter. You need to hear. Maybe that's why they're not concerned about killing babies in the womb. They don't need babies. They're going to try to steal ours when they set foot on those campuses. So, beloved, hear what Peter's saying. Hear what Peter is. You don't have to necessarily hear what I'm saying. Hear what Peter's saying. Hear what God is saying. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Heck, I've seen that happen in my own family, but I won't go any further with that. Okay, um, one more. With consistent spiritual growth. How, do we, how, are, we, how are we to live in, our, in, in light of Jesus' return? Okay? Paul, Peter ends it with, with consistent spiritual growth. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ grow here is a present active imperative verb in other words it is a command that is never ended it's an ongoing command present active imperative it's a command that we need to be obeying on a regular consistent basis this is what makes Our sanctification that we talked about earlier, different from justification and glorification. Okay, three tenses of salvation. In justification and glorification, past and future, God does it all. God does it all. We have no part in that. He saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. He does it all. He glorifies us by grace alone. We have nothing to do with either one of those. In justification, we bring nothing to the table but our sin. And guess what? It gets nailed to the cross. And we receive the righteousness of Christ as a gift. We do nothing. In glorification, we're at the total mercy of God's all-wise timing. We have no say in it. When we see Him, we will be as He is. Not because we finish the work, but because God will. Philippians 1.6. God will finish the work. He began in you. But in sanctification, in the present tense of our salvation, we cooperate by obeying God's Word. As we do that, the Spirit of God makes us progressively more like Jesus. That's why God can command us to grow that's why he can command us to grow because he's he has ordained that our obedience is part of the sanctification process so what's another term for growth in grace when peter tells us to grow in the grace of of our lord jesus christ it's he's, it's, it's progressive sanctification peter could have said be progressively sanctified Being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And note the direct link to growth in the knowledge of Jesus. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There won't be any growth growth in grace without growth in the knowledge of Jesus. They go together. The better we know Jesus, the more we grow in grace. And listen, it's not grace that grows. Just don't get confused by that. It, it's not great. God has lavished the fullness of His grace on us in Jesus. We grow in it, okay? I, I thought of a silly illustration, but it's like you, you put an inner tube around a 12 year old and throw him in the ocean, and you work out a helicopter or something. That's a stupid illustration, okay? But you work out a helicopter and you drop him food, and he's out there for two years. Well, the ocean's not going to grow, but the kid is. If you feed him properly, if you get the food to him, I know, stupid illustration, okay? But the point is, it's not the grace that grows. From the fullness of his grace, from the fullness of his grace. We, John 1, 16, we have received one blessing after another. Grace upon grace, grace. But we grow in that grace. We're, we're swimming in the ocean of God's grace. And we are being fed his word and we are growing. And as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus, we grow in grace. They're, they're connected. They're connected. Now, we've got to move to a, to a close here. And here's what I want to leave you with. Think about this with me. Isn't it touching that Peter's last exhortation, the last verse he wrote in his last letter, his final word to us, was also exemplified by his own life. I mean, think about it. We all know Peter, okay? Think of all the times Peter blew it. All the times he stuck his foot in his mouth. All the times he messed up. He was the only apostle that Jesus called Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Remember when Peter said, You're you're not going to die. You're not going to Jerusalem and die. Get behind me, Satan. When Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, (laughs) Peter wanted a bath, right? You're not going to wash my feet. Oh, give me a bath. Okay? He was always blowing it. He, he, de, he denied Jesus verbally three times. But he grew in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And we've got two letters, two letters by him, that demonstrate his growth. I love what Chuck Swindle says, this final doxology to his Savior stands as a profound testimony from a man who had once fallen from his own steadfastness, only to be restored to a place of spiritual strength unmatched by most believers since. Peter grew from a headstrong Galilean to a humble apostle, from a simple fisherman to a legendary fisher of men. So, Peter closes his last letter His last writing to the church, his last writing to us, with a reminder of why we exist, a reminder of our purpose for living, and that is to honor and glorify our Lord. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Beloved, to not live with this purpose is to waste our lives. To not live for the glory and honor of Jesus is to live a wasted life. To our Lord be all the glory, Peter says. Both Look, both now and forever. Okay? Don't wait till heaven. Now. Now. If, ha- if you haven't started glorifying Jesus now, start. Today. Today's the day of salvation. Today. now now and forever glorify him now and know that as his beloved children you will know the joy of doing it for all eternity we will never cease praising and worshiping and honoring our king never will his praises cease the glory of his cross and the victory of his resurrection will never be diminished for all eternity oh that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall we'll join the everlasting song yes the unending song and crown him lord of all ponder i got to leave you with i got to leave i got to end our second peter study with words from the prince of preachers okay listen ponder these majestic words that only he can say <laughs> From Charles Spurgeon. Let every heart joyously feel this doxology. To him, the God who made the heavens and the earth, apart from whom nothing was made, to him who in his infinite compassion became the surety of the covenant, to him who became a babe, to him who was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and acquainted with sickness. To him who on the bloody tree poured out his heart's life that he might redeem his people. To him who said, I thirst and it is finished. To him whose lifeless body slumbered in the grave. To him be the glory to him who burst the bonds of death, to him who ascended on high and led captivity captive, to him who sits at the right hand of the Father and who shall come soon come to be our judge, to him be the glory. Yes, to him, you atheists who deny him. To him, you Socinians who doubt his deity. To him, you kings who vaunt your splendor and will not have this man to reign over you. To him, you people who stand up against him and you rulers who take counsel against him. To him, the king whom God has set upon his holy hill of Zion, to him be the glory. Do you you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Right after, uh, right before Peter denied him. In Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what he's done (laughs) by writing these two letters for us. That prayer of Jesus has been answered. We see it through Peter's leadership in the book of Acts but also through his writing of First and Second Peter, the great apostle has continued to strengthen followers of Jesus down through the ages, including us. May we be thankful. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the Bible. And thank you for men like Peter. Men who exemplify how you grow us, how you change us, how you make us more like Jesus. Please do that in this church family, Father. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of who you are. And while we trust you to do that, may we also hear that as a command to do our part in our growth. May we read and study and hunger and thirst for your word that the roots of our life may may go deep so that we would not lose our stability please help us father and we'll give you all the glory as peter said to you be the glory both now and to the day of eternity amen amen